Thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Piles, recorded in our writer's studio just above the bookshop at Kilometre Zero in Paris. If you enjoy these conversations, there are a few different ways you can support us. First of all, you can leave a rating right now in whatever podcast app you're using. The more ratings we get, the more likely it is that people will discover us. It only takes a few seconds and can really help spread the word. You can also buy books, gifts and apparel from our online store, shakespeareandcompany.com, where you'll find our popular Year of Reading subscription. 12 books handpicked by our dedicated booksellers, shipped to you or a loved one wherever they are in the world. Finally, you can become a friend of Shakespeare and Company by joining the association we set up to get us through a difficult few years. Membership gives you access to exclusive online content, as well as other treats depending on the tier you choose. Find out more at friendsofshakespeareandcompany.com. I'll be back at the end, but until then, sit back and enjoy the Shakespeare and Company podcast. Something Out of Place is Ema McBride's first book of non-fiction, and is possessed of all the passion, originality of thought and erudition that readers have come to know in her novels. Beginning with the sentiment of disgust with which, McBride argues, society regards and treats women, it develops into a blistering and astute polemic against the patriarchal framework that oppresses, coerces, sculpts, controls, and all too often ends the lives of half the world's population. Sinead Gleeson described something out of place as a fearless, interrogative work that speaks so much to structural inequality and misogyny, while Stuart Kelly, writing in The Scotsman, called it a fierce, clear-eyed examination of the myriad ways in which women are objectified, adding that it was remarkable. I'm delighted to say that Ema McBride joins me today to discuss it. Ema, welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. Hi, Adam. Delighted to be here. Delighted to have you here, if only virtually. Um, I think before I be- before we begin to talk about the um, the the grist of the essay, um, as I said in the introduction, this is your first book of nonfiction. Obviously, you've published articles and essays before. Um, now, anybody who knows your your fiction will know that it's not fiction which could be called necessarily sort of polemical fiction. Like you don't come out of it as a reader. Um, thinking, okay, the point of this book was to say X, Y, and Z. But at the same time, I think perhaps like all fiction, but more so in your case than, than in other books, it's, it's definitely in certain ways political fiction and feminist fiction. Like I think there's there's definitely something in the the way you write and the perspectives you choose and the voices you inhabit that has a sort of... Uh, yeah, sort of a, a, a feminist thrust to it, has a sort of a, a, a political urge. So what I'm curious to ask about is why did you feel the need to go from the kind of the novel form to the the essay form to express um, the thoughts that you express in, in this book? Well, you know, I suppose like everything I write, it, it wasn't really a decision. It was mm-hmm. um, a welcome collection uh, approached me and asked me if I would be interested in writing something for them uh, on a subject of my choosing. And I, I suppose I was very fond of Welcome Collection because I had spent several years temping uh, hmm. there back <laughs> in the olden days before I could get published. And uh, so I had a think and, and I realised that this idea of disgust was something that had been floating around in my head for a few years and that actually this might be the moment to try and pin it down, try and unpack mm-hmm. it a bit, try and just to see really if it was just something in my head or if it was 
you know, something else out in the world that other women experienced or if I could, you know, pin it to mm-hmm. to some other ideas. So, yeah, it was it was really a kind of a confluence of things rather than a decision to step away from fiction. Mm. And we'll come on to the the, um, the specifically the subject of disgust in a moment. But just resting with the the idea of an essay. So you you say you say um, early on this is simply an essay, a collection of thoughts, not an objective work of academic research, and so by its very nature subjective. Um, was there a moment when you were sort of drawn more one way than another? Like you you thought perhaps for the the investigation of disgust. Uh, you might need to do something a little bit more academic, you know, with sort of, I don't know, with more footnotes and more references and to really sort of delve into, I don't know, the the literary history of disgust. And what was it that drew you more towards the the kind of the the essayistic, the sort of subjective perspective? Well, you know, possibly laziness. <laughs> <for a start. laughs> um I don't, you know, I don't come from an uh, an academic background. I didn't mm-hmm. go to university. I don't have that in my blood. Um, and it's something that I always feel quite anxious about approaching. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also didn't really think that that was where I had something to offer. I didn't mm-hmm. have those kind of skills and I don't have that ability to to unpick at a minute level. I think I... You know, my job as a novelist is to look at the world and see what I see. And I suppose mm-hmm. I was thinking that I would approach this in a, in a similar way, um, albeit with having to do quite a lot of reading um, mm-hmm. to to back it up. So it wasn't purely just, you know, me having my, my say in, into the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and also because I thought, yeah, there are academics who can do this and can do this better than I can. What might be interesting is perhaps for a woman in her mid-40s to look around her life, the experiences mm-hmm. of her life and the society that she grew up in, the culture that she lives inside of now, and simply point to some of the things that kind of prick at her. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, I suppose, what I mean by it being very subjective in that it, mm-hmm. it was really a matter of me following my nose rather than following a, a program of, of thought or a program of research. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting because what it put me in mind of, actually it threw me back to um my university days, was that it's sort of I've seen it described as sort of um a manifesto. And when I when I hear the word manifesto, I think of it more in a sort of traditionally kind of political term of kind of these are points of how things should change. And it's not it's not that kind of book. And yet it did put me in mind of that more sort of traditional form and I mean that in, a, in in quite a complimentary way because I, I'm very drawn to these kind of books. The kind of thing that you might find in sort of, well, the Communist Manifesto of Marx or like Rousseau's Discourse on Inequality, which is sort of, you know, that idea of oh, man is born free and yet everywhere is in chains. And why is this? And let's let's investigate this. And so you kind of begin with a concept, an observation, and then try and sort of unpick it, unravel it, understand it from sort of one sort of uh, one person's perspective, hopefully, therefore, kind of opening out to a more sort of generalized, uh, generalized view on something. And, and so for me, it sort of it, it fits very nicely as kind of a modern version of those kind of, um, yeah, sort of traditional sort of political treatises. 
Yeah, I, I, I think so. I certainly didn't set out with the idea of uh, um, organizing a program for change mm-hmm. um, because it's really a book about noticing and about questions rather mm-hmm. than about answers and solutions. Mm-hmm. Um, because I'm not someone who has ever felt that they are in a position to tell others how to live. Mm-hmm. But there are works that have profoundly influenced me that are a lot about just teaching, that taught me to notice. Mm. And that actually to notice and to engage with something uncomfortable is mm. often as much solution as you will get because yeah. no one person can can uh, take down a system can create yeah. a new way of of women in this case being in the yeah. world but it you know i i thought a lot about um which again is an academic book is incredibly well researched which is in is the opposite of this book which was uh, susan Faludi's backlash uh-huh. um which was a book that really taught me as a young woman, I maybe read it in my late teens, early 20s, just to look at the world in a different way, to look mm-hmm. at the messages that the media were offering to me and to interpret them mm-hmm. in, a, in, a, in a different way, to not simply take everything at face value. And I suppose that, rather than all the work and all the years she slaved over it, uh, putting you know, putting academia to her academic brain to, to good use. I, it was that idea, that idea that sometimes someone can just show you, mm-hmm. show you a place, a direction to look in. And when you once you've looked in that direction, you can't unsee what you saw there mm-hmm. and you carry it with yeah. you. And that becomes a filter through which you interpret your experience. And so, it, yes, it, it very much comes from that. And, and, and from my, you know, from my own completely subjective view of, of mm. looking at the world. And, and was that sort of um, that sense of being unable to unsee something, was that kind of how this concept of uh, this kind of origin concept of disgust kind of arose in you? Like once you once you'd had the, the thought or the realization or you'd noticed um, uh, women or the female body being treated with disgust, in, in sort of society that did you suddenly then start noticing it in this context and that context and it's just sort of like it was almost impossible not to see it in the whole the whole structure of society yeah absolutely I think it once once you begin to see something you you then pick up the threads of it elsewhere you recognize mm-hmm. it in other places and it seemed to me that disgust was an incredibly powerful but discreet tool of oppression mm. against women Be- and and you know perhaps my kind of irish catholic upbringing made me more <laughs> alert to it than mm. than someone you know who's grown up in the in the cod in, in the uk but <laughs> they, i think they the the kind of the subtle messaging that underpins so many things that leads one inevitably down the lane of to the point of self-disgust I recognized it. I, mm-hmm. you know, and I thought yeah, this is, and this is operating outside of a religious context. This is operating all over the place. And this is going into institutions. This is going in through interactions. It is, you know, right throughout social media. It is all over the, um, the press. And 
yeah and and maybe it's time to say it out loud mm-hmm. because the you know the point about disgust is of course the shame that it brings upon the person who is All right. the subject of disgust who has mm. you know created a sense of disgust in others and that makes mm. it incredibly hard to tackle head on can you remember the the first moment that you articulated to, to yourself or the first situation or the first context in which you know from which this then this this kind of uh, system of thought sort of sprung out of or was it more more kind of ambient thing i think it was it was completely ambient and it was it was slightly ridiculous i remember quite a few years ago now sitting watching tv and um an ad came on for some kind of foot cream which mm-hmm. had very attractive young woman on it and then showing her cracked heels and saying are you ashamed of your cracked <laughs> heels and i just thought oh my god now heels everything else but now yeah. now heels heels i have to be ashamed of and and feel disgusted by the sight of my own heels having dry skin mm-hmm. like this is and it was the beginning of the, the idea of just grasping the ridiculousness of it but the extent of it that that you know to sell some foot cream mm-hmm. a woman is supposed to feel ashamed about her feet mm-hmm. not just hey your feet are a bit sore put some of this on this might help yeah you. No. yeah yeah but where is your sense of shame about mm-hmm. your feet we can help you with it but you know you have to ex- you have to own your shame about it before we can help you with our amazing food and that just it just seemed to exemplify so many other things and I, mm-hmm. ever since then i have just always been much more alert to though you know that kind of like the endless sort of you know oh you're a disgrace but we have a solution mm-hmm. here we go and there's one thing that really struck me while reading the book was this sort of um was the force of disgust actually the sort of the the taboo nature of it like once it's once you once this disgust is provoked in one whatever the the cause of it 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 is something physical it's something that sort of it it's not just a sort of uh a question of taste something which one would rather not see or something it's it's really something that that possesses the whole being and actually you know provokes sense of kind of of nausea and wanting to to sort of put some distance between oneself and the thing um and that sort of yeah it really came across to me while 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 reading the essay was the sort of the power therefore of the of disgust as a kind of as a sort of a a means of control of half the world's population yeah absolutely because it's not something because it is something which is more which is physical which is visceral which you which is a, a bodily reaction it can't be argued out of it can't be rationalized if you you know you walk past a pile of vomit on the street mm-hmm. there is no conversation in which that will stop being disgusting to you mm-hmm. that is the nature of it and i think it it just seemed to me that so many conversations around women for centuries have been tailored towards creating this idea that their natural bodily functions are disgusting mm-hmm. that therefore the nature of woman is disgusting that one can only be revolted by menstruation by lactation by mm-hmm. menopause 
by women's bodies doing just the stuff that women's bodies do because that's you know their biological function and that women have no say over i can't not mm-hmm. have my period that's you know that's my body unless i do something radical to myself that's that's what my body is going to do until the time when it stops doing that mm-hmm. um and yet there has built been built this kind of vast system of taboo all mm-hmm. around all of those functions um you know and i was very aware when i was when i was a child you know of of you know my mother after she gave birth had to be churched before mm-hmm. she was allowed to come back into the church and take communion because mm-hmm. the female body giving birth was considered to be unclean mm-hmm. and if that's the atmosphere you grow up in and 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 everyone you know does and everyone you're ever related to has before you for generations that is cumulative and it takes mm-hmm. an awful lot to deconstruct that level of negative reaction yeah just as this kind of um an, uh, a side point on that the sort of the, the the sort of the catholic upbringing which you mentioned earlier as well do you think in a way for the sort of the deconstruction that gives you in a strange kind of way a sort of an advantage because i think of the the sort of the sort of the, yeah, the more sort of mild-mannered less kind of overt but still very much present discussed one might find in the church of england or society at large in fact where sort of you know in in the catholic church it's clearly articulated you know women women's bodies unclean these processes dirty you need to be purified etc cetera, etc cetera. whereas you know that's sort of openly uh, sort of rejecting of, of women and their bodies. Whereas in the kind of society in which we live now, it's sort of more pernicious in a way. It's sort of all of these forces are still there, but because they're buried, because there's sort of certain veneers put over them, in a sense, perhaps that sort of makes them more difficult to to unpick. Yeah, absolutely. Which is, you know, which is why I, I wrote the book. And, you know, despite having mentioned the fact that I'm a, <laughs> I was reared Catholic twice already in, <laughs> in this podcast, there's not a great deal about that aspect of it in the book. And that's mm-hmm. not really what the book is about. I think that was just perhaps gave me a heightened sensitivity mm-hmm. to it because that was, you know, a much more, there was a more dramatic way that I was reared into those into those notions um but yeah absolutely i mean it is completely secularized and accepted and 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 quiet but but my god but still punishable by death you know mm-hmm. by by social death by media death um you know should the body dare to be different to to social norms should you know i mean you can see even in this last week uh pro linda evangelista talking about being disfigured by cosmetic process that she's been mm-hmm. through and the immediate race to get the photo to get the picture mm-hmm. of her so we can all look at it and be revolted by her and go oh she's so brave poor her but oh my god look at her face isn't that her? you know yeah. and and that is you know that that is also a method in which disgust is mm-hmm. is is filtered through to all of us is that where yeah. you know now as long as we say oh, well it's terrible and brave and you're beautiful even mm-hmm. if you're not beautiful anymore you know that then somehow we don't have to deal with the underlying issue of 
why does the body have to be in this way? Why does this mm-hmm. woman's body have to appear this way? And why are we appalled by it being different to what it has yeah. been? And that's yeah. you know, it's that's a that's a um, a microcosm of what happens to all women all the time. Why, mm-hmm. is, why is the body like this? Why is it deformed? Why is it changing? Why is it doing all of these things? Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you um, when you mentioned earlier, sort of the, the the concept of disgust, and you mentioned, for example, the the vomit on the street, like there's no way that that could ever be uh, anything other than disgusting. It did make me put me in mind of the obviously the the title of the book, because in in, in the case of like the example with the vomit, it's true. Like it's perhaps with the I don't know the exception of maybe a biologist whose specialization is studying the human you know bilious system yeah. maybe there it's not disgusting but like broadly we can say like vomit in every context pretty disgusting whereas the title of your book so something out of place there's this this idea that one of the underlying kind of motivating things for that disgust is the sort of the the fact that sort of women's bodies are not where they should be and not be doing what you know not be doing what they that what is prescribed for them and yet there's this kind of strange contradiction at the heart of it is that what that where the place is is never really sort of described so they you know women are perpetually out of place wherever wherever they are yeah and this is the kind of the the central idea i suppose of of the of the whole essay and it's it's you know it comes from uh, the anthropologist Mary Douglas's uh, book Purity and Danger in which she examines notions of disgust and why disgust becomes or why taboo becomes useful in certain mm-hmm. times and places and how when it stops being useful it's sort of dissipated and uh, and it, it seemed to me to apply you know beautifully to the situation for women so you know her idea that you know a piece of cake on a plate is not disgusting but a piece mm-hmm. of cake lying on the, the toilet floor is disgusting the cake mm-hmm. is still the cake but where it is has somehow made it disgusting and and that seemed to me the perfect analogy for the situation that women are in that you know everywhere we go we are seen to be infiltrating spaces mm-hmm. um that 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 we don't belong and of course you know the last century or so of of kind of radical change in the domestic situation of women of women getting the vote of women uh you know being able to divorce or abortion of contraception of of you know uh, equal rights in the workplace this is this is really only a hundred years of, mm. of change and there's millennia of of tradition behind that is still pressured and that is still pushing against all of those things. And there is still a mindset that uh, if only if only women would stay within the bound, okay, we, we accept a comfy workplace, but mm-hmm. we should be able to put our hand up our skirt in the workplace. Oh, oh no, we're not allowed to put our hand up the skirt in the workplace. Okay, well, we should be able to make a dirty joke mm-hmm. about them. No, okay, well, we should be able to make a dirty joke with them. Uh, no, we're not allowed to. And, it, you know, and that it just creates a, a further kind of resentment and anger. And so, you know, there's an acceptance of, well, well, we can take this bit, we can take this bit. But each time women are ruining it 
for everyone. Mm. And and also it's sort of the the title, of course, put me in mind of that old sort of expression, you know, a woman's place is in the home. And the kind of the the kind of the irony underlying that is that often the sort of the 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 home the sort of domestic environment was essentially a prison for women yeah, who were there. Like exactly. it was it was a prison of of of, of you know, labor and childcare and often sort of abuse as well. And so sort of like even the place that is for women isn't really their place. It's not their place in that they can feel comfortable in it or feel at home there. I think this is, you know, this is, you know, the perpetual difficulty for women because there is no one place to go to and there is no one great place that we came from that Mm -hmm. we can look back and go, well, what we would like is things to be a bit more like that. What mm-hmm. we would like is to return, you know, for instance, when you read, you know, someone like Maya Angelou talking about the experience of 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 being black and and a kind of an idealized notion of returning to Africa that this was and to an idealized Africa that this was the place where things would have been better and, and her experience mm-hmm. and it being different. And and but women don't even have a place like that mm-hmm. anywhere, you know. Black women, white women, Asian. Mm-hmm. No, there is no, there is nowhere for any of us where times were good and life would mm-hmm. be yeah. and equality was had, and mm-hmm. and so in a way we are constantly always fighting for the next and discovering more and not necessarily all aiming towards the same end point but mm-hmm. certainly all understanding oppression when we see it. But it, it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it, it makes for a very jumping forward motion, which is not easy to sustain a kind mm-hmm. of a, a coherent push forward. And, and, and I suppose this is why you see so many different splinterings in the feminist movement. There are just people who have different priorities and who want different things. Um, but yeah, so it's the, the place... The place we come from isn't great, but the place we're going mm. to is also unknown. Yeah, and that's that's one thing that this is, this is very clear in the book is that that sense of you know pushing forward. Uh, you mentioned just a moment ago the last hundred years, and you know it's of course there are sort of moments of sort of identifiable. Well, I don't know if you say progress or improvement um, in uh, particularly in 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 the Europe and you know the West for um, for for women, and yet. There's also, you know, the, the, I think the, there was a, a short period, I don't know, maybe in the sort of the early 2000s, when perhaps broadly people thought, oh, well, we're done with that. You know, we, we figured this out. You know, there's, there's equality now. And, you know, that was, of course, a very naive thought then. But I get the sense that in the last few years, particularly, there's either been, I don't know if we'd say it was a regression or there's certainly been sort of an upsurgence in the kind of, from the kind of the patriarchal framework to sort of to, to reestablish itself or to regain the losses that it's uh, it suffered. Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, in the in the kind of obviously in the in the in the nineties there was the the whole kind of surge of the Ladette movement, which was supposed mm-hmm. to be great, which was like now we can smoke back and drink pints with the lads, and <laughs> that's that's equality, right? And then, of course, that got turned into, and now I have to make fun of fat girls and mm-hmm. sit with my legs spread on the cover of FHM. 
and and that's equality right because i'm in on the joke i'm you know they're, mm-hmm. they're sort of post-feminism started to wonder through persuading us all that we had nothing left to be angry about and that if we were angry we were just sour mm-hmm. or ugly and mm-hmm. unhappy that we weren't getting the attention that other women were getting and it i think it had a very powerful effect because it has a very shaming effect because you mm. know you, you're the one who's spoiling the fun for everyone right by being saying i actually hang on I, i'm not quite sure how this is how, how is this feminism how mm-hmm. is all this porn surging through everything how is this feminism because because some women watch it that makes it feminist now does it oh i say no matter how women in these images and on these films are being treated and you know the endless kind of push towards everything's okay what else do you want you've got it all now mm-hmm. stop complaining and and the quieting down of of and you know of everything that then came up as soon as me too arrived mm-hmm. which was yeah not not fun actually always having to be the butt of the dirty jokes not fun yeah. having an employer who thinks that they are entitled to you and that you're being a spoiled sport if you don't give them what they want or who takes what they want from mm-hmm. you and holds it over you and frightens you into seeking justice for that and that you know it it became really clear that you know women again had been sort of separated out it was like mm-hmm. you know they managed to, to to pull people off into various groups and and keep them quiet and keep them disconnected mm-hmm. from a wider sense of actually as a group we are being treated we are uh, being asked to accept behavior which is not acceptable which would not be mm-hmm. doled out to men in society um and so you know me too kind of changed all of that and allowed women to be angry again i think women were you know the permission to be angry like we, we, we can't we can't have all of these angry women um mm-hmm. you, you can speak nicely you can watch your tone you can tell us nicely what's wrong but but don't get angry and don't make demands and definitely don't don't refuse and don't yeah, refuse yeah. on mass and uh and and me too change that um i think you know there's obviously there's a lot of things that need to be dealt with in the post me too world like what what mm-hmm. now what now is it is it enough to say what happens after that has it has it changed things are institutions changed by that experience Mm-hmm. and and that's going to you know that's going to have to be worked through as well but i yeah. think women are certainly more aware than they have been in the last 20 years mm-hmm. um i think you know fourth wave feminism is a bit like oh sure it's grand let's all be <laughs> nice to each other and i can wear mini skirts and stripper heels and have a laugh mm-hmm. and you know make sure that you feel okay about your masculinity which i can never mm-hmm. be taken care of and that's feminism for me because uh, it makes me feel empowered to dress like a hooker mm-hmm. and uh you know and that's that you know that back and forth is and those those kind of strange double messages are things that you know women are constantly bombarded with and struggle to unpick yeah 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 one thing that that, that makes me think of is in the way you um write about sort of the technology and the effect that the recent changes in technology have had on uh, the way women are perceived and the way um, women are able to, to 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 manifest as well to protest against um, the way things are and like I think often um, 
what you know technology seems to be presented as uh kind of a black and white thing either it's been a liberating thing i mean i remember in the sort of when for example the arab spring started there was suddenly this idea of the sort of the twitter revolution and then that, that's that soured very quickly and i think the last few years particularly there has been a sense of sort of the the damage that um uh technology causes to uh across society actually uh so when i say technology i mean of course you know the sort of social media web 2.0 all that kind of stuff and you present us i think a more sort of um nuanced perspective and for example you were just talking about me too then and it's strikes me as that is um and i suspect it's your um your sort of uh your love of language that prevented you from calling it the hashtag me too movement or something like that. <laughs> but like, but like this was, this was something which was driven by social media and the dynamics of social media that in a sense allowed it to gain an ampler, which it probably wouldn't have been able to do 20 years previously. And yet you also mentioned um, the kind of the pornification of a lot of our um, society and, you know, the, the, the access people have to pornography, the quantity of pornography people seemingly consume the um the nature of that pornography as well which from from what i understand has been sort of whittled by the algorithm to be sort of uh very sort of specific uh types of kind of of to to appeal to the kind of the most the let's say the as as much of the sort of the male base urges as possible in one video if you like so there seems to be like um to your mind, there's this sort of, yeah, sort of double edge, I guess, to to what technology has done for for women and the feminist movement. Yeah, I mean, I th- I think the idea, obviously, at the beginning of social media was a kind of democratization of mm-hmm. uh, of information, but also of the ability to to make connections with others, mm-hmm. to to circumvent all the procedures of of kind of mass media and all of their biases and all of their prejudices and all of their agendas and to communicate directly with others and that you know has become you know that has been hugely betrayed by everything that we have Mm. learned about Facebook and Twitter and how and the algorithms you know, pointing people in particular directions, picking up certain things and, and pushing certain ideas. And so we can no longer view these things as, as direct access. Um, and I think women, you know, very clearly come out on the on the hardest end of mm-hmm. of this because it, it it's become a form in which to attack. And rather than to converse, women making a point, women having an opinion, women daring to be seen at all, to uh, to show themselves or to try not to show themselves, uh, it's just opening the door to madness. Mm-hmm. And, and you see endless kind of rape threats and murder threats over the slightest points of disagreement. And... Um, it's it's hard to understand how women can deal with it without this becoming a legislative legislative issue, which I think inevitably it must. Mm-hmm. With without you know basically shutting up 
and closing yeah. down their accounts. This is another place where women are now out of place by mm -hmm. being heard, by being seen. And the the nature of the way the conversation is had on social media. So it's no longer a debate about ideas. It's who is a good person and who is a bad person. Mm -hmm. And and what do we all together do to bad people? Let's all yeah. go at them right now and decide that everything about this person is a disgrace and deserves to be destroyed. And um and yet at the same time, as you say, Me Too was something that was completely enabled by uh by social media and there are lots of of points where women can meet and discuss and and the idea of the body positivity movement was something that very much came out of instagram mm -hmm. um but but you know straight away as soon as 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 anything becomes a point of conversation the the brands move in things become mm -hmm. co-opted everything gets shrunk back down to more traditional and acceptable ways of looking, being, mm -hmm. you know, speaking. Uh, and women's places are, again, crushed down and trying to be mm -hmm. larger than that, than the space to which you, it is believed you are entitled. Yeah. There's a feeling that almost sort of these things like the Me Too movement or the body positivity movement, like they have taken root in social media, but sort of also almost despite the sort of the algorithms and the tides that are at work rather than because of them in a sense like they sort of these the these movements have used these tools uh, but the tools that doesn't mean that the tools are necessarily conducive to the movements it just so happens that the tools no. and the, the tool is not available. necessarily on their side mm -hmm. uh, yeah and and will not act as a support and certainly do not act as a buffer and take mm -hmm. no responsibility for for what goes on in their, on their forums. Yeah. Really you put me in mind of also, um, I was, there was somebody talking specifically in the context of comedy, but of this this sense of part of the problem on social media as well. It's just so much of it is unseen. And that sort of so uh, this uh, male comedian was saying that he, you know, he would, you know, get, come in for some criticism for things that he said, but it would all, always be in a kind of, on the sort of the the front level of Twitter, if you like, but he said one thing: who friends of his, women comedians, that you don't get to see unless you kind of delve into the threads. Is that as soon as they post something, or as soon as they appear on TV or a panel show or whatever, under every one of their tweets are insults and death threats and rape threats and things like that. Which, unless you click on the tweet and you scroll down, as a sort of somebody who is following this person, you're not going to see. But they will receive as notifications in, you know, whenever whenever they open their app or on their phone. And and so it's a sort of like this almost this sort of hidden bombardment that um, seemingly sort of a lot of women in the public eye have just kind of not 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 come to accept, but just have, in order to be in these on these platforms, have no they choice almost have, to endure. have no choice. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah absolutely. And and. And because there is so little accountability for the way people behave mm -hmm. online, you know, there needs to be a conversation about is is anonymity the great thing that it was mm -hmm. supposed to be at the beginning of the internet? Is it about freedom? Is it a freedom to what? If people are not held accountable mm -hmm. for the way they behave online, uh, if they if they do not have to put their name to the things that they mm -hmm. say, is that freedom? 
and and whose freedom is that and is this mm -hmm. you know if people can behave in ways that would not be acceptable in everyday life online or, or is this really the way that we want society to go we can't pretend that this isn't now part of society mm -hmm. it doesn't exist just in a realm it's not something people do after dinner for half an hour mm -hmm. before they go on to more erudite pursuits it's, it's you know, an <laughs> intimate part of a lot of people's daily life and and their interactions mm. um and it's it's not really enough anymore to to, to claim that that the, free, the freedom to be anonymous is yeah you know overrides someone's ability to to live in peace mm. Mm. on the subject of um pornography um one of the sort of distinctions you um, you make in the essay, and I think um, drawing on uh, Angela Carter, particularly when she was writing about uh, the Marquis de Sade, is that sort of distinction between meat and flesh. Um, and, and, and again, this was something which I had not found sort of articulated in, uh, for example, in discussion of uh, online pornography or advertising or the way that women are perceived in society. But as soon as you sort of outlined the the sort of the difference in the way that these two words, which are often, which could in certain contexts be used interchangeably, but in fact, they carry such profoundly different uh, connotations uh, for, for you know, the manner that they're used. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I thought when I came across this in, in Carter's The Sad Book, I, it was like a light went on in my head. I thought, oh, this is a really useful way to talk about objectification. Mm -hmm. um, how, is the, how is the woman in this situation being treated? How is her body being treated? Is it meat or is it flesh? And yes, we often think of those words meaning the same thing, but when you start to delve down into it, you realize that, of course, you know, meat is not something that we refer to human body, bodies mm -hmm. as. We, you know, we consider ourselves to be flesh. And if we use the term meat, it is very specifically to make a point about mm -hmm. uh, objectification or, or, or like dehumanization in some way. Mm -hmm. um, and yet you see all, you know, all over the media images of women that are completely dehumanized. And I think once you, once you see that, that, that there is a difference between meat and flesh, it's very clear it kind of sorts a lot of stuff out mm. in terms of is this an objectifying thing or is this not is this does this body belong to a person a sentient person someone mm -hmm. who has an emotional life and who has hopes and dreams for herself who has a child at home and a mother in the nursing home she has to go and visit once a week is this um a person who who thinks about the world and what do we know of that as we look at her boobs in this tiny bikini it's you know and i think i i'm so in a way it sort of ruined a lot <laughs> a lot of movie watching for me because <laughs> you know you kind of look at it and you and you think oh why is that happening what's that doing there why am i looking at this at this moment why is this mm -hmm. scene happening in this place why are we looking at this woman's body in this way? What has this to do with her character? What mm -hmm. has this to do with the forward motion of the plot? Or are we just looking at an object here because mm -hmm. it's nice to look at a naked woman? And, and more often than not, of course, that is the absolute 
the simplest and but the, the truest rationale is that we're looking because we like to look because it's taken mm-hmm. eating because it's being offered to us on a plate and this is not there for any other purpose um so yeah i think angela carter kind of nails that one very very mm-hmm. nicely and has has you know been tucked away in her dispatch book i think and, and maybe not given the the interest that it deserves mm-hmm one um one other sort of um it's not it's not exactly a sort of uh, a, a distinction you that you make or you unpick in the book but it's one i'd, I'd just like to to ask about because it, it struck me when i was actually when i was going back through my notes rather than when i was reading um the first time is that you do talk about um at moments you talk about the the body of the girl and then you talk about the body of the woman um and so there's for example you're talking about the the first manifestation of shame um, and you say, you know, there's little ambiguity about the place of its first manifestation, the body and specifically the body of the girl. Um, by can I can I just ask just for a bit of clarification? Are we talking about the sort of do you think there is a, a distinction in the sort of the way that the sort of, let's say, the prepubescent sort of uh, girl child is viewed with disgust and is imbibed with shame? And then there's a once women go through girls go through puberty and become women and then certainly as they age as women there's a kind of a shift in the the nature of the of the disgust or is it something which you know is sort of grows throughout throughout the life if you see what i mean yeah i think uh, i think the 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 point about the the body of the girl is that it is seen as the uh the first battlefield this Mm -hmm. is the this is not necessarily an object of disgust in itself, but it is the place where disgust first starts to be notions of self-disgust start to be channeled, where mm-hmm. children are, you know, surrounded by incredibly sexualized, objectified images of women, where children's programs until recently catered very little for interesting female characters, complex mm-hmm. female characters, um, that male characters outnumber them and are always in the kind of the central adventure mode. And mm-hmm. and that's only really started to change in the last 10 years or so. Um, and even then you mentioned Paw Patrol, I think, with, I even, with its sort of six dogs know, and only one of them... And only one of them is uh, a girl. Female, yeah. She, yeah, yeah, she's in pink with pink bows. Mm. Um which, you know, infuriates me because, you know, Paw Patrol is a great tool if you have a small child. <laughs> um, you just wish that it, 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 she didn't have to choose. She mm-hmm. was able to choose more. Or, you know, I think when I was a girl, I spent a lot of time identifying with male characters because there were mm-hmm. no female characters that I identified with. And it took me a long time to realize that even if I identified with them, I would still not be considered to be in that league. Mm-hmm. didn't really matter if I felt like I was upper very thin or yeah. whoever because I wasn't and I would never be and I was mm. outside of that world um, and so I think you know it's it's kind of it's a dangerous place because the pressures are high pink clothes are everywhere mm-hmm. the, the, the princess business is forced down every throat at all times and it's difficult for women to combat the pressure. I mean, it's hard for an adult woman to reject notions of what she should be and, mm. and 
almost impossible to protect a young child from those images and from those pressures. And when, even if they're not being directly exerted upon her, just growing up in that milieu, growing up in, mm -hmm. that, in that whole pervasive atmosphere of this is what a girl is, does, looks like, sounds like, behaves. Um, and, you know, and making, and making girls, I think, afraid of what, what's coming for mm -hmm. their bodies of the changes mm. that will happen of of the life that they will be going towards because you mm. know no little girl looks at you know the the pressures of of grown women and especially when you're trying to teach child to have her own voice to reject those kind of images they are then become increasingly aware of the pressures that the adults around them the adult women around mm -hmm. them are under and and that in its turn you know, makes them fearful of what their own futures will be. So it's a very, you know, it's a it's a really difficult tightrope to walk to mm -hmm. to constantly assure a child that she can be what she wants. Yeah. And that she can reject these pressures if she wants while not frightening her. That, yeah. That, yeah, yeah. that the that it she will become overwhelmed and not putting her in a position where she feels like she has to fight every minute of every day. Mm -hmm. And that's, I mean, that's another thing that's sort of pernicious about a lot of the um, uh, the culture that is available to us. And it's, I think it's changing a little bit, but only a little bit is, and this you go into this in the book, is that the, it's not only the fact that sort of uh, girls and women are presented with sort of few uh, sort of, uh, let's say, complex characters to identify with or to aspire to, but a lot of the male characters there's also a fixed form of how men should be and i mean the the essentially the the archetype of the alpha male and so it's not there's this kind of this dual exclusion in a way it's sort of saying you know it's it's excluding women completely because you will never be able to occupy this role and for i mean in my experience like a a, a large amount of men it's also saying sort of this is the 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 sort of the the standard to which you have to to try and operate you know this is the this is you have to work in this kind of this sort of aggressive this sort of adventurous this kind of outgoing this domineering fashion or you know there's 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 not the sort of the 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 complex sensitive emotional male characters either for little boys so there's this kind of uh, this double failing, in a sense. Absolutely, and I, and and I, and that you know, I think that runs through right, right through through life. Is that I think mm -hmm. men are also trapped inside stereotypes that are not necessarily of their own choosing, mm -hmm. and and also, you know, are increasingly objectified, perhaps. But I think, I mean, the the, the problem is. That, that complexity that you, you want, that multiplicity of self that everyone experiences really in their own life, that they can be, you know, the loud and outspoken angry person, they can be the shy and withdrawn person, they can, mm -hmm. you know, want to wear a nice dress and then want to wear a pair of cowboy boots. And all of these things are just stuff that goes on and, and moves through us in our life. All the, the the aspects of ourself that we want to pursue, the part of me that is angry, the part of me that is afraid, the part of me that is outspoken, the part of me that is ashamed, is, you know, it is hard to harness power mm -hmm. over that. 
And so that is why it is not considered to be acceptable, I think, mm -hmm. why it has not been traditionally acceptable. And if we have two very separate roles, one for men, one for women, these are the things that they do. Everyone has a place, everyone is in a place, and if they don't like that place, those people get to be kept in that place against mm -hmm. their will. And, you know, and, and the world has changed and people are changed. And in mm -hmm. some ways that has been one of the benefits of social media, but also the backlash against it is also, you know, very prevalent in social media. Um, but yeah, complexity is not, is not encouraged a lot, I think. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we're um, we're almost out of time, um, but there was one thing I suppose this is a sort of a nice point on which to to, to end the conversation. Not that I think this conversation uh, is, but it's, it's by no means it's by no means ended. I think this is a conversation which, uh, as you say at the um, you know towards the the end of the book, you say you know there's I don't think there's only one on answer, and you know that's the point. It's not sort of something which is going to be <laughs> sorted out in an in an hour long podcast, but. Um, Looking to the future and looking at that kind of patriarchal framework uh, that has existed and persisted for so long and that is being, you know, that is being kind of redefined and reshaped, um, but perhaps, uh, you know, that's more sort of unfortunately tinkering at the edges rather than sort of deeply sort of uprooting some of the things that, that holds it in place. Um, I suppose my final question is about that sort of your hope or your sort of vision for the future. Like, do you think that it is possible even to sort of deconstruct that framework from within that framework and to build something new and better sort of on its ruins, so to speak? Or is is that a sort of maybe a bit of a sort of a utopian view? Like once you're kind of, you know, locked locked in it. Is there sort of is it is it even possible to 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 think outside of it, having been so sort of completely defined within oh, it? Yeah, it, I mean, it's very tricky because, of course, you know, utopian thinking is where no one's permitted to think about utopia anymore. Everything is mm. only dystopia. But the truth is, change has happened, mm -hmm. and worlds have changed countries have changed, people have changed, the universe renews itself, everything can be different. And it might, the problem is, it's not going to happen tomorrow, because you write angry tweets to someone today. Mm -hmm. It is about accepting a slow process. And that, you know, should the revolution happen tomorrow? Will women suddenly be treated any differently? No, you know, it will be it will be the same. What what it, it's an evolutionary process rather mm -hmm. than a revolutionary process. But I think, and part of that, and we can all play our part in it, is 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 an, with an alertness and an mm -hmm. awareness, with an ability to look further than the thing that we have been told, deeper into that, to imagine a different solution, to understand that maybe the problem is not what we think it is, but might come from another angle, may come from a different mm -hmm. place. And, you know, I mean, disgust was not something that I felt when I was a child that I, I kind of knew much about that I was aware of, but I feel incredibly aware of it as a woman in my 40s. 
and that changes my interaction with the world. It changes the behaviour I'm prepared to accept. And it changes the way that I dole out what mm -hmm. I ha I want to say in the world as well. That I too do not indulge in kind of simple, quiet shaming. Yeah. Um, and everyone can do that. That's not just, you know, men doing it to women. Women can do it to each other as well. And that's also part of the conversation. Mm -hmm. And and to be alert and and aware. But I, I do think I don't know. I'm I'm very bored with the whole everything's ruined, nothing can happen. Mm -hmm. That this is, you know, this has been going on for millennia. Everything's ruined mm -hmm. and nothing happens, the end of the world. Well, maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but we're alive now and we can do things differently and we can make change and there is precedent for that. That's not some that's not a fantasy. But mm -hmm. it is accepting the boring, tedious nature of change, progressive, constant, pushing forward and not running the finish line and expecting everything to be fine tomorrow. Hmm. I think that's a perfect place for us to to leave it. Thank you so much, Ema. Um, Something Out of Place is, of course, available in store at Shakespeare & Company. It's available from our website. Uh, you can find the link in the, the show notes to this um, podcast. Um, all that remains for me to say, Ema McBride, thank you so, so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Shakespeare & Company podcast with me, Adam Biles. Since you've made it this far, I hope that means you've enjoyed what you've heard and will consider rating us in whatever app you're using. The theme music is Mr Ginger by the incredible jazz musician Alex Freiman, taken from his album Play It Gentle. I'll be back next week. Until then, take care, happy reading, and thanks again for listening.